You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. So this is my first time to actually speak in chapel as like the main speaker, and what a day for that to happen. Um, I did go to Asbury, as Greg mentioned. I transferred here as a sophomore, so that means I never got to sit in the balcony um, as a freshman, but when I came and I got my assigned chapel seat, my very first chapel seat was A7, which is right there, which they don't assign anymore. I kind of have issue with that. Um, Maybe I'll write a letter. But uh, that was my seat. So if Hughes ever gets renovated, if they ever replace the chairs, I call dibs. I'm going to buy that at auction. Um, But it's really good to be with you today, and it's really good to be able to be a part of this particular week, even if it does seem extremely awkward, right? Because this is the sex week. It's the sexuality symposium. It's a time when, for the whole week, every chapel is centered around this idea of sex, Because no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter who you're really talking to, sex is always awkward. The talk is always awkward. It never becomes easier. You can be married for 15 years as we have, and it's still awkward because it's one of the most personal, one of the most intimate things that is a part of us. And because it's awkward, that means we have to talk about it. That means we need the language. That means we need the foundations. Now, One thing that could happen in coming to a place like Asbury is that I could assume that we all think alike when it comes to sex, when it comes to this particular topic, that I could stereotype this campus in saying that this is true, that a certain way of believing is true of everybody in this room. Now, I know a couple episodes back, the Smokestack podcast, Smokestack guys, shout out, um, they talked about stereotypes. And that is a stereotype that you could have of Asbury, but I know better. I know that we don't all think the same about this. It wasn't true 20 years ago when I was a student, and it's certainly not true now. And so my job today is not to convince you of anything that you don't already think, because I can't do that. My job today is not to make you feel guilty, because I can't do that. My job is not to force conviction upon you about your choices. I can't do that. If any of that is true, It is the Holy Spirit that is already working in you. And so my job today is only to partner with the Spirit that is already at work. Because it is awkward. It's fragile, this thing that we get to talk about today. Now, I grew up in a home where my parents loved me and I grew up in a Christian home, but my parents were products of their generation. And so no one probably ever really talked to them about sex. And they certainly never heard about sex in a setting like this. So as products of their generation, they never really talked to me about sex. We had sex ed in school, and we had uh, True Love Waits in church. Anybody remember True Love Waits? You know, when you're supposed to, um, you know, commit to to be abstinent um, until you're married. So we had True Love Waits in church, but my parents never actually talked to me about sex. But I'll never forget Then in December of 2003, it was uh, December 30th, 31st, right around New Year's, uh, Corey and I had just gotten engaged. We got engaged December 29th of that December. We had just gotten engaged, and I'm packing up all of my things for us to go back to Mississippi. She was in her master's program, and I was interning at a campus ministry. And as I'm packing up my bag, my mom kind of appears out of nowhere with this brown paper package, and she says, open this when you get there. 
And so I stuff it in my bag, not thinking about anything. And I, you know, load up the car and we drive the 12 hours from Virginia all the way back to Mississippi. When I get back to Mississippi, I'm unloading my bag and I find this brown paper package, which I had honestly forgotten about. And so I unwrap it. And what I realize suddenly is that this is a sex book from 1973. (laughs) And I realize that this must be the book that my parents, someone gave to them back when they were engaged and about to be married and about to, and then I dropped it high like a hot potato. (laughs) I didn't want anything to do with that book. That's as close as I came to a sex talk with my parents because it's awkward. And so today, what I want to do is to try to lay a foundation of how we can build good and healthy relationships with one another. I want to lay a foundation so that we actually know how to talk so that we know how to move forward in our relationships. No matter where we find ourselves right now, no matter what we believe about this or think about this, how can we move forward and how can we have a foundation to move forward with that? And I want to do that with a story because I'm a preacher. That's what we do, right? We tell stories and we preach from the Bible. And so today I I wanna use a story that is very familiar. It's probably one of the top five most familiar stories in all of the New Testament. We often call it the story of the prodigal son. And I want to read it to you, read a portion of it to you from Luke chapter 15. So Luke 15, verses 11 through 24 is what I'm reading today. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But while... But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a story about a family, about a home. And one of the sons, the younger son, decides to ask his father for his share of the inheritance. Now, we might not think much about this. We might not think that it's it's a big deal to ask our father or our mother or our guardian for something. But when this son asks his father for an inheritance, it's actually a very big deal. He is essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. 
I want my life to be my own, and I no longer want to be a part of this household. Because in this culture, the younger son is not just out there on his own. He is living in a household that contains his father, his brother. And if his brother is married, his brother's family. And if he were to get married, even his family would all be a part of this single household. And by saying that to asking his father for his share of the inheritance, he is asking to be independent. He's, it's like kids today who want to divorce from their parents, who want legal guardianship over themselves. In a very similar way, he wants to break from the family tradition. And so he wants what's coming to him. And he cannot even wait for his father to die naturally. He wants it now. And the father has every right to say no to this request. The father has every right probably to actually stone him for this request, to punish him. Because what he has asked is beyond comprehension. But the father instead divides the estate and gives him his share. The younger son then liquidates his share. So he sells off the things that can be sold so that he can fill his pockets with money. And he is now independent. Nobody can now tell him what to do. His father doesn't tell him what to do. No older brother looking over his shoulder. If you are a younger sibling, you know what I'm talking about. He no longer has an older brother looking over his shoulder, questioning his every decision. He leaves. And the text tells us that he just doesn't go to Nicholsville. He just doesn't go to Lexington, but he goes to the distant country. Now, I think we can all relate to this idea of leaving home, of wanting to, to get out from maybe from where we're from. Some of you are from close by. I know you are because I know you. Some of you are from a further away across the country, other countries. But we all know what it means to be able to leave the comfort and the security of home. I grew up in Danville, Virginia. It's Southern Virginia, right on the North Carolina line. And it's a, not a huge place. It's bigger than Nicholasville, but it's smaller than Lexington. And growing up there means that I grew up with all of my family around me all the time. Multiple branches of my family tree go back in this area over 200 years. And the land that my parents, my parents live on right now actually goes back in my family to the Revolutionary War which means that I grew up around every aunt, uncle, grandparent, cousin, second cousin, great uncle, great aunt, everybody. Everybody was within a 10 mile radius of where I grew up, which meant no matter where I went, no matter where I would go, no matter who I met, they already knew who I was. I grew up in a place where it felt like everybody knew who I was before I even walked in the door. This was especially true in high school because I actually went to the same high school that my parents went to. The same building, it was, it was the same high school, literally. And when I went to high school, every teacher in the high school either taught my parents or went to school with my parents. This was a pretty tight-knit community, a community where most people grew up and they stayed. A, a community where people lived there their whole lives. My generation, my, me and my sister, and then I have two younger cousins. We're the first ones in either of our families to actually now live outside of this place. This place is home to me. It's home because I know it like the back of my hand. When I drive those roads, I still pretend like I'm a 17-year-old high school student trying to make record time to get to school, right? Because I know those roads. I can drive them with my eyes closed. There's a comfort and a security that comes with knowing a place that well, with being that rooted in a place. But there came a time when I was ready to get out. I grew up the younger sibling. 
I had an older sister who went all the way ahead of me through school. I grew up in a place where everybody knew who I was. And if they didn't know me, they knew my parents or they knew my grandparents or they knew my great grandparents. I had a great grandmother who was one of 19 children and a lot of them stayed. I was related to a lot of people. I was ready to leave this place. And so when I finally looked for schools, I actually found Asbury in a catalog. Do you know what a catalog is? It's like a paper thing that you open. I think they had a website, but it wasn't very good. And I found it in a catalog. I came and I visited and I liked it and I came. I'm not a legacy. Nobody in my family had ever heard of Asbury before. So when I got to campus, when I moved into Johnson Third West, which was my first hall, James Ballard from the WGM Center was my RA. When I moved into Johnson Third West and classes got started for the very first time in my life, nobody knew who I was. And it was so freeing. It was so freeing to finally be in a place where I could be myself, or at least what I thought was myself. Because when you're 18 and 19, how much of yourself do you really know, right? And so it was so freeing to finally be in this place. The younger son goes off to this distant country, pockets full of money, and it is freeing for him. And we're told, not a lot of detail, but we're told that he goes off and he squanders his wealth in wild living. Notice there's no detail there. We like to fill in the blanks about what this means, but we actually don't know what it means. We don't know what he did. We don't know what he spent his money on. Later, the older son will accuse him of sleeping around with prostitutes, but that's the older son, right? How many of you have older siblings that accused you of things that weren't true? Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, We actually don't know what all of that meant. All we know is that he was finally free, but he took all of that wealth and he squandered it in wild living. He was independent. Nobody could tell him what to do. But what's interesting about the son going out into the world like this is that we see that he was the activator. We see that he was the one making the decisions and he was the one choosing to live in this way. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a a place, in a world, and in my church where the world was always painted as evil. It was the world we had to watch out for. It was the world that was dangerous. We had to protect ourselves as Christians against the world, right? And we never really got good explanations about what the world was. It was just the world. Beware of the world. The world will seduce you. The world will lead you astray if you let it. Now, don't get me wrong. Our world is broken. And we know now more than ever because of social media, because of the way news is disseminated, we know that there are broken things in this world that the world is not as God intended it. But the other reality that we sometimes need to grapple with, especially as we seek to move forward in healthy relationships, especially, especially in terms of our sex and our sexuality, is that the evil is not just out there, but the evil is also in here. Augustine kind of coined a phrase. I don't know if he coined it, but he used it. And it's a really great phrase. Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo. Um, He wrote the Confessions, which many of you have probably read. 
And it's the phrase, encurvatus in se. Encurvatus in se. And it means that the will that the self is turned inward upon itself. It means that we are bent in our will and our desires in on ourselves, as opposed to our will and our desires being bent outward. Martin Luther, actually, years later after Augustine, wrote about this. And what he said was, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. All that to say is that left unattended, our will and our desires bend towards themselves. They seek to please ourselves. And this is no more true than when it comes to sex and our sexuality. And we know that that's true. It's affirmed in James, James 1.14. Remember James is talking about the nature of temptation and he doesn't say, beware the world. Put up your defenses against the world. The world will lead you astray. What James says in 1.14 is, but each of you is tempted when you were dragged away, not by the world, but by your own evil desire and enticed. We're not dragged away by some worldly force. We're dragged away by the temptations and the things that already live inside of us. Because when we have independence, when we feel like we need to make a name for ourselves, when we feel like we don't need other people, we begin to bend in towards ourselves. And that is sin because we're bent in towards ourselves and not towards others and especially not towards God. And we see this in the younger son. Everything that he does is bent in towards himself. When I was here um, at Asbury, one of the most formative experiences I had was as an RA. And so I ended up being RA of the zoo on Johnson Third Main. And um, it was a really great experience. But one of the things that made being an RA such a great experience was actually the RA manual. Now, I actually meant to bring it. I still have it. It's in my office. It was this big, like, three-ring binder full of readings that we were supposed to do over the summer. And one of the readings in that binder was by Henry Nowen. I had never heard of Henry Nowen. Some of you today may have never heard of Henry Nowen. But it was this article by Henry Nowen called From Solitude to Community to Ministry. And it opened up this world to me of writing in this tradition of spiritual formation. And soon I found out that Nowen just didn't write this article, but he wrote books. And I thought, oh. And I, that article spoke to me so deeply that I began finding Nowen's books. And he became a go-to. And 20 years later, he is still a go-to for me. That I read Henry Nowen whenever I feel like I, I need something to, to pour into me, with something to, to form me. Well, Nowen also really identified with the parable of the prodigal son. And one, and one day, he was actually introduced to the painting by Rembrandt. And so I have a copy of the painting uh, for us to view. This is called The Return of the Prodigal. It's by Rembrandt. It hangs um, in the Hermitage in Russia. And now, in one time, found himself in Russia, and he actually had a contact who could get him in to see this painting in person. The real one is like seven or eight feet tall and like this wide. It's massive. And he spent a whole day, one whole day, sitting in front of this painting. 
looking at all of the different elements, looking at the play of light, looking at how Rembrandt chose to represent this story. And out of his reflections on the parable, but also his day with the painting, he wrote this book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I read this when I was in school, and it spoke to me, and it still speaks to me now. And in the section when he speaks about the younger son, now and touches on this idea that we are bent in on ourselves. He says, I am the prodigal. Every time I search for unconditional love, where it cannot be found. I am constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health, my intellectual and emotional gifts, and I would add even our sexuality, and keep using them to impress people, receive affirmation and praise, and compete for rewards instead of developing them for the glory of God. Did you catch that? That we use the gifts that God has given us, and our sexuality is one of those gifts, that we use the gifts God has given us and we bend them towards ourselves to impress people and to receive affirmation and praise instead of developing those gifts for the glory of God, instead of bending it back outward. The son, the younger son in the story, squanders all his wealth and wild living. And he doesn't hit rock bottom because he suddenly realizes how empty he is. He doesn't hit rock bottom because he suddenly is tired of the wild living. He hits rock bottom because a famine is spread throughout the land. That means there's no food. That means that the, the fields aren't producing. And if there are no, and the fields aren't producing, there's no food to make. That means there's no food for the animals to eat. So everything is desolate. That means there are no jobs to be had either. And suddenly he doesn't have any money. And when money runs out, the friends tend to run out too. Have you ever noticed that? And so the relationships are gone. He's isolated and he's lonely and he has nothing. And so he hires himself out to feed the pigs. And for a good Jewish boy, this was a no-no. You did not even come 50 feet to pigs. And yet he finds himself on a pig farm, feeding the pigs, longing for the slop that they are eating. And it's in that moment, that rock bottom, it's one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. It's not super spiritual, It's not, you know, super transformative, but he says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he came to his senses. What does that even mean? He came to his senses. A little more detail would have been nice, but what I think it means, what I think it means is that this is the beginning of his redemption. What I think this means is that for him to come to his senses is that he realizes and he remembers the goodness of his father. He remembers that the hired hands who worked for his father had it way better than he did. He remembers that home. And while he was so ready to leave and to get out and to to find comfort and security and other things, he remembers that that place was a place of comfort and security. He remembers the place that he grew up knowing. He remembers. Five years ago, I had a first talk, first sex talk with one of our kids. He was seven. We were riding in the car and Corey and I had already talked about this. We'd already talked about in our marriage how we didn't want to grow up like we grew up with our parents kind of never really approaching that subject. 
And so, you know, we do what any good parents these do nowadays. We read lots of books. And some of the books that we read said, at a very young age, your children will ask you, out of curiosity, where babies come from. And this is your first sex talk. Not about storks, not about magic fairies or anything like that, but this can be your first sex talk. So our oldest was seven years old, and we're riding around in the car, and his curiosity, and he is one of the most curious minds that I know. He reads everything. He says, Dad, so how does the baby get in there? Because he's kind of put it together, right? That a baby's growing in there. And we've always been anatomically correct. That was something that we also committed to. And so as I'm standing there, I'm like, as I'm driving the car, I'm like, well, here we go. And I said, well, do you know how boys have a penis? He said, yeah. I said, do you know how girls have a vagina? He said, yeah. Then I proceeded to explain the mechanics <laughs> of how that works. And he said, that's gross. <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and then we moved on because that's all a seven-year-old can handle. But that was our first sex talk. But I know that there are more sex talks coming. And I know that I can't make his decisions for him. I know that he will make choices that I probably don't agree with. And as a father, that breaks my heart to even think about it. Because I don't want him to be broken in the same ways that I was broken. And he may not be. But I know that I can't make his choices for him. But what I do know, what I do know is that I can leave that door open. I can be okay with being awkward about sex talks. And I know that when he makes those choices, my hope and my prayer is that he will want to talk about it. That the door is open for him to be able to come back home. Because no matter what he does, that is who I want to be. Many of us have an image of God who is a judge and watches everything that we do. We think that God is just ticking the boxes of all the wrong things, telling us how we're not holy. But you know what? Holiness is not about checking all the right boxes. Holiness cannot be found by doing all of the right things. When we sit here and look at this week after week, holiness unto the Lord, it means that the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart and that you are living that out because of that love. My hope is that when my son comes to me and tells me about his choices, that I will embrace him as the father has embraced me. Because no matter where I go, no matter how independent I think that I am, home is always there. And home is the embrace of the father. How do we move forward from where we are? We allow God to meet us where we are right now. We cannot change the past. We cannot change what we have done or what we have thought. But what we can do is realize that we have a place with a father who runs out to meet us and he embraces us. Look at this embrace. Look how the father just is hovering over him. When you see it up close, you can see that his left hand is like pressing. It's like flexed, pressing the sun into him. 
And we see that the son is ragged. He's missing a shoe, that he's shaved his head, which is a sign of shame and poverty. And we see that he's still even hiding his face in shame. But even in our shame, even in that place, the father embraces us. That is our place. So how do we move forward? We know that we are bent in on ourselves. We ask God to forgive us. And then we realize that that is our home. And God is always open, inviting you to come into that embrace. Let us pray together. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you love us this much, that no matter where we are in our relationship with you, that you love us. There is nothing that we can do to make you love us less, and there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more. God, thank you for loving us that much. Help us this day through the Holy Spirit to know that our place, our home, is in your embrace. Lord, give us the courage. Give us the courage to come back home. It's in your name we pray. Amen.